your Bibles, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Last time we were together, uh, when we first started the chapter, Paul covered verses 1 through 3. And he taught us, he was speaking to us about the gift. But he, he said that, you know, the gifts, we needed the gifts, the gifts are wonderful. But he says, you know, if we're not using them in love, which he called a more excellent way, that really they were not of much use, not of much value. In verses 1 through 3, Paul focused on the emptiness of gifts if they were used without love. Now, in verses 4 through 5, we find the most detailed biblical description of what love is. God's definition. Paul doesn't teach us what love is so much as on what love does and doesn't do. Agape. Greek word for love, self-sacrificing, unconditional, God's kind of love. Agape love is active, it's not imaginary, it's not some nice warm thought, it's not some theory, it's not passive. Love doesn't just feel patient, it practices patience. It doesn't just have kind feelings, It does kind things. It doesn't just recognize the truth. It rejoices in the truth. Love is really love when it acts, when it does something. John said in 1 John 3, 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The Bible does not command us to feel like loving but to think and to speak and to act in a loving manner. And Paul's main purpose here isn't just to instruct the Corinthians, but to change their living habits. And that's the thing about the Word of God. It's not taught, we don't teach it to give knowledge well, not, not, we do give knowledge, but not just to hear it and to go out and say, well, that was, that, that was really neat. It's not to give us information, but it's for transformation. It's to change our living habits. And Paul wanted them to carefully and honestly compare their lives alongside those specific characteristics of love. In other words, he wanted us to take our lives place them right alongside these characteristics that he's going to define and compare them. How close am I living to the description of this love, this characteristic of love that that Paul is describing here? So, again, putting them up beside each other and then evaluating how close am I to to loving as, as Paul described. John MacArthur said this, Paul is painting a portrait of love and Jesus Christ is sitting for the portrait. He lived out in perfection all of these virtues of love. This beautiful picture of love is a portrait of Jesus Christ. And in Paul's defining of love, he describes the nature of love in verses 4 through 8a. 
And he starts with love's main concerns. And if you remember the first time we read about Paul in Scripture, he wasn't very nice. Paul's hands, again, love was not exactly his strong point. And those hands that later wrote, I show you a more excellent way, were dripping with the blood of the believers he murdered in the name of God, thinking he was doing God a service. But Paul has come a long way, growing in grace, increasing in the knowledge of God and developing the fruit of the Spirit by the time he wrote these words. Henry Drummond says, You can take nothing greater to the heathen world than the the impress and reflection of the love of God upon your own character. That's the universal language. It will take you years to speak Chinese or in the dialects of India. From the day you land, that language of love, understood by all, will be pouring forth its unconscious eloquence. It's the man who is the missionary. It's not his words. His character is his message. And you see, it's not so much what we say, it's what they see in our character. Because it speaks louder than our words can. The first of love's concerns is to be like Christ in suffering. So let's begin with chapter 13, verse 4. Again, the first of love's concerns is to be like Christ in suffering. And Paul said, love suffers long. Love suffers long. In other words, love practices being patient or long-suffering. Literally, it means long-tempered. We don't have a short fuse. And this word, suffering, is common, or long-suffering, is, is common in the New Testament. And it's used mostly of a long-suffering with people. People are the ones who seems to light a short fuse on us. It's a long-suffering, it's a patience with people rather than with circumstances or events. And love's patience is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over and over again and yet not be upset or angry. Henry Drummond said, love understands and therefore waits. But long-suffering is more than patience. It's self-restraint. When we're faced with irritation and frustration, love never retaliates, which is something that we want to do many times. 1 Peter 2.21, Peter said, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Whenever Jesus was done wrong, when he was reviled or threatened or he suffered, he never did anything back to the person. He gave it to the Father. You deal with it, Lord. Help me to deal with the person. Lover, love, is a, love is never in a hurry to punish and criticize. David showed this kind of patience with King Saul. You see, David knew that he was going to be king, the next chosen king. God told him. And he was going to replace Saul. Saul tried to murder David 24 times. 
David even had a moment in a cave when he could have eliminated his problems with Saul. But he said, nope, I'm going to let God take care of Saul. He waited for God's time. God's patient love and persistent loyalty almost won Saul over to the kingdom. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was Edwin M. Stanton. He called Lincoln a low cunning clown and the original gorilla. He said it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. Abraham Lincoln never responded to the slander of Stanton. But when he was president and he needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. When his incredulous friends asked why, Lincoln replied, because he is the best man. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in state, Stanton looked into the coffin and said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His hatred was finally broken by Lincoln's long-suffering, non-retaliatory spirit. Patient love won out. This second of love's main concerns is to be like Christ in kindness. Notice next in verse 4, it says, Love is kind. Love is patient. When patience and long-suffering passively wait, kindness is eager to take action. And just as patience will take anything from others, kindness will give anything to others, even to its enemies. Being kind is the same as being patient. In Acts chapter 10, 38, it says that Jesus went about doing good. Jesus spent his whole life doing kind things for people. When David was on the throne, he took off one day to show kindness to a poor, lost cripple named Mephibosheth. To be kind means to be useful, to be serving, and to be gracious. It's kindness in action. It, it, it not only feels generous, it is generous. It not only desires others' well-being, but works towards it or for it. And then in verse 4, Paul describes love's contentment. Notice, notice it says, love does not envy. It's not jealous. Love and jealousy cannot exist at the same time in the same heart because when one is where one is, the other isn't. When this, is, when this is used of man, the difference is that envy wants to deprive someone of something he has, where jealousy wants to have the same kind of thing for itself. Jealousy and envy are ugly sins. Compared to love, love is generous in the face of competition. Envy and jealousy show themselves most often when we find ourselves up against people in the same line of ministry or the same job position or service or activity we are, only they're doing it better than we do. It's the mean-spirited feeling of ill will and belittling that so suddenly takes root in our hearts. While love, on the other hand, is generous, it's giving, and it's helpful, and it has sincere praise for the other person. This envious, jealous spirit was at work in Corinth over the question of the gifts. Everybody always wanted somebody else's gift, or the better gift. 
And their tendency was to want what somebody else had, especially the gift of tongues. Why? Because it was so obvious. It was so so showy. And people probably felt more spiritual because look at the one that I have. I can speak in tongues. It really proves that you're saved, some people say. And so their tendency was to want something that somebody else had. And especially the gifts because it was such a spectacular gift. Because love is an act of the will, the best way to deal with envy or jealousy is to crucify it. And, and, to, and to start aggressively to pray for it and support the person whose gift and success you covet. Instead of wanting what they have and thinking wrongly of them, you pray for that person and you encourage and you praise that person for what God has done in their life, for the blessing that God has given them. And then Paul goes on in verse 4 and says that love does not parade itself. In other words, love is never egotistical. Love is not pushy. Love does not parade itself means to brag. Love doesn't brag about itself. When the loving person is successful, they don't brag about it. They don't talk conceitedly. Love does not put its accomplishments on parade as to say, look at me. Look at how God has blessed me. Look at the gifts God has given me. Look what I can do. Bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what somebody else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds us up. Now, we all have experience when we've heard people bragging about themselves. We just don't like it. We can't stand to hear somebody brag about themselves. This person, this speaks of a person who likes to show off. And to draw attention to himself. But boy, we sure like to brag about ourselves, don't we? Love isn't like that. Love is not concerned about impressing other people. When Abraham negotiated the price of a burial site, he described himself to those he was wanting to buy it from. He, he described the, uh, the, uh, the peop- uh, uh, the, to the people of the land. He described himself as a stranger, a sojourner among them. He just said, hey, I'm just a stranger and a sojourner among you. I'm just traveling through. But the people were totally aware of Abraham's total victory over the kings of the east. And sometime before this, they said of, of Abraham, you're a mighty prince among us. He said of himself, I'm just a stranger and a sojourner. Others said, hey, you're a mighty prince among us. You see, that's the best way to be recognized by other people. Let others boast about you. Next thing we Paul say in verse 4 is love is not puffed up. The word puffed up means to be inflated. This is the person who who has an exaggerated view of his own importance and he thinks he's more important than he really is. Love is humble. Love steps out of the shadows only to do a kind thing and then slips back into the shadows. Love doesn't think that what it's done is at all out of the ordinary. It doesn't show signs of pride or self-esteem. It doesn't say, did you see what I did? Like Peter and John at the gate, beautiful, when the man was laying there and they prayed for him. 
They humbly said, hey, we, we don't have silver and gold, but what we have, we give to you. And they prayed for him, and, and he was healed, and they went into the temple to pray. They didn't stand out there and gather, hey, guys, did you just see what we did? Hey, let me see you do that. They humbly did what God had put on their hearts. And when the man was healed, he went back into the temple. They went, they went in to finish praying. Pride and arrogance produces strife. And that was the problem with the Corinthian church. They were full of pride and arrogance. But in such things, love has no part. Arrogance is being big-headed. Love is being big-hearted. Then five, chapter, uh, verse 5, Paul continues on. He says, love does not behave rudely. Love does not behave rudely. It means unbecoming. Love is not unbecoming. This principle has to do with poor manners, which this world is so full of today. Unfortunately, even in the church. Acting rudely. In other words, love has good manners. It's general politeness. It's common courtesy. Opening the door for people. Saying thank you. You're welcome. Excuse me. Greeting people. Rudeness doesn't care enough for those around them. Rudeness doesn't care about the people it's around. Rudeness does not care about acting becomingly or politely. Paul said in Philippians 1.27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your conduct show that you live the gospel. Rudeness doesn't care about other people's feelings or sensitivities. The loveless person is careless, they are bossy, and they're often foul-mouthed. They're not interested, again, in the, in the person's feelings or the sensitivities. Love is a lot more than being gracious and considerate. It's never less than that to the point that our living is ungracious, inconsiderate. Rudeness is also unloving and unchristian. Self-righteous rudeness by Christians can turn people away from Jesus Christ even before they even have a chance to hear the gospel message. We, we, we kind of give off to that person the first thoughts about Christianity and Christ if they know we're a Christian. And if we come off rude and, and callous and just unkind, and, and you know, why would they want to hear what I have to say? Or go to the church that I go to. It'll, it'll turn them away. Maybe never hear it. They won't have a chance to hear the gospel. Because of the messenger who hinders the message. The person was cold and rude and impatient. How many times have you heard that? If people do not see the gentleness of Jesus Christ clearly in us, they're less likely to see him clearly in the gospel that we talk so much about and that we preach. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you. And gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.23, 
David said in 2 Samuel 22, 36, your gentleness has made me great. Your gentleness has made me great. Think of it. As David was chased by Saul for years, as he looked back on those years of, of constantly running and hiding and and, and, and Paul tried, uh, he, he, you know, he was just constantly running. And as he looked at that danger and difficulty he was in, he didn't see the hardness of his life. He saw the gentleness of God. Verse 5, he goes on and says, Love does not seek its own. Love is not selfish. Love does not, does not pursue its own interests. It doesn't insist on having its own way, which is another character of this natural man. We want our own way. The root evil of man's fallen human nature is wanting to have what it wants. It wants to have its own way. Linsky, the great Bible commentator, said this, Cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. You see, Adam and Eve rejected God's way so they could have their own way. They wanted what they wanted. Self took over and replaced God. That's the opposite of righteousness and the opposition of love. I'm sorry, the opposite of love. Love is not obsessed with its own things, but with the interests of others. Philippians 2.4. Remember when Abraham's and Lot's cattle started to multiply? Their flocks got so big that, that they, were, they began to bicker, about, uh, um, bicker among their herdsmen for available pasture land. And Abraham was quick to put that to a stop. He said, Lot, he says, look, we're bickering over land and, and, and our herdsmen are watching us. Two believers arguing over land. He says, you know, we got to stop that. Abraham recognized that the unsaved were watching them bicker. And he selfishly said, suggested to Lot, hey, let's divide the land between us and then go our separate ways. But more than that, Abraham generously told Lot, Lot, you can have first choice. Here's the thing. It all belonged to Abraham. All of the land was deeded to Abraham. God deeded it to him, not to Lot. But what did Abraham do? Hey, you take whatever you want and I'll take what's left. You see, love seeks not its own. It doesn't insist on having its own way. It doesn't seek its own advancement and promotion. There's no happiness in having or in getting, but only in giving, as Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than receive. Most of the world is on the wrong track right now in pursuing happiness. They, they think it consists in having and getting and being served by other people. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, love is not provoked. The word provoke means to exasperate. It is not enraged. The word provoked means to arouse to anger, and, and people can just arouse to anger from 0 to 60 in a, in a second. It doesn't take much for people to, to become enraged. To be roused. It speaks of a sudden outburst of emotion or anger. Love guards against being irritated and upset 
or angered by things said or done against it. It's not provoked. And love refuses to be frustrated, even though it may be aroused with good reason to righteous indignation. Maybe I have a good reason to to have this righteous indignation, but love does not carry a chip on its shoulder. It's not insulted. And so many people are so insulted so easily. It doesn't play, love does not play head games. In other words, it doesn't try to figure people out. Hmm, I wonder what they meant by that. Oh, I wonder why so-and-so didn't talk to me today. I wonder why, 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 why. And what does that do? We begin to develop now a negative attitude towards somebody because we come across looking at it as it was negative. It was against me. Rather than saying, well, maybe they got something going on in their mind. Maybe their mind is somewhere else. Maybe they're going through something and we have no idea. Love doesn't know what it is to be touchy and to be irritable and sensitive over things like that. Love doesn't let itself be affected by those things. And that's where verse five, uh, the next uh, uh, characteristic comes in in verse 5. Paul says, love thinks no evil. In other words, it doesn't nurse or hold grudges at wrongs done to itself. The words think no evil is an accounting term. It's an accounting term. It's the picture of, of an accountant with their ledger. And he, he, and he writes in his ledger all the transactions of the day, the date, the, the amount, or whatever whatever it might go into the ledger. It's all written down there. And whenever they want to go back and see what they did or what happened three days ago, they can go back there and see it. Well, Paul says love, love doesn't do that. When, the, when, when you're wronged, it doesn't have a record of how many times you were wronged. It doesn't keep track of how many times you've been done wrong. Again, it's referring to keeping track of all kinds of evil and wrong, wrong that were done to you. Warren Wiersbe said, people are really good at holding on to the past. He said, there's nothing wrong with our learning from the past as long as, we, as it doesn't turn the present into a museum and the future into a cemetery. Is the past encouraging you or embalming you? If you concentrate on your past, you are to rob yourself of a glorious future. Howard Hendricks says, you learn from the past, but you don't live in it. Love doesn't look for chances to get even or or go around looking for pity. Love holds no resentment and nurses no grudges. Verse 6, Paul continues, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't nurture joy at wrongs done to others. Love does not rejoice when bad things happen to other people, even if they may have brought it upon themselves, even if they deserve it in our own, on our own eyes. Love does not secretly rub its hands and say, oh, I'm so glad they're getting what they deserve finally. It doesn't enjoy the troubles of others, like I said, even if they have it coming, even though they bring it upon themselves. We're not to enjoy the failures and the shortcomings of others. 
Agape doesn't do that. Paul says love never takes satisfaction from sin. Whether our sin or others. Doing wrong things is bad enough in itself. But bragging about them makes the sins even worse. To rejoice in unrighteousness is to justify it. It's making wrong seem to look right. As Isaiah warns in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That's That's turning God's truth upside down. Then Paul moves on in verse 6. Love rejoices in the truth. Love is glad when truth wins over and doesn't lie, cheat, or deceive. It's characterized by integrity. Paul isn't just talking about truth based on fact here. He's talking about God's truth as revealed in his word, as revealed God's revealed word. Righteousness is based on God's truth, and it can't exist apart from it. God is truth. Love always rejoices in God's truth and never with falsehood or false teaching. Love can't tolerate wrong doctrine. You know, and and we've heard this many times before that, you know, it doesn't make a difference if people don't agree with what we believe. If they don't believe our doctrine, what matters is that we love them and we all just get along. That doesn't make any sense to say that. That's the basic view of what's commonly called the ecumenical movement where let's just get all of the religions together, man. Let's just take the best out of all of them, just be one big happy family and love each other. If we truly love others, it will matter a great deal to us whether or not they believe what is right or wrong. Because you see, what they believe affects their souls and their eternal destinies and their reputation of God's will. So we should be concerned about what they believe. It also affects their souls and desti- the souls and destinies of those that they influence, whether they go to heaven or hell. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 136, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. It, it broke the psalmist's heart because they didn't listen to the word of God. The psalmist said in 119, 142, your law is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other truth. There's one truth. Verse 7, Paul goes on to say, then we have love's forbearance. He says, love bears all things. The word bears can be rendered covers or protects. It means to put a roof over or to cover That's what love is like. Love finds ways to cover and to protect. It finds ways to forgive and forget. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, this doesn't mean love tolerates evil. It means love does not exaggerate the size of the sin or goes out and carelessly tells everybody about the person's sins or digs up the past and and forgiven sins to distort people's thinking. Love covers sin in the way that, in other words, it it covers sin in, in that love motivates us to hide the sin from others and not spread it around. 
You know, many times you hear people, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? No, it stops with us. We cover that sin in the sense that we don't exaggerate it, we don't spread it, we don't tell other people about it. We don't spread it around. Next in verse 7 comes love's faith. It says, love believes all things. Love believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean that love is gullible. It doesn't mean that love blindly accepts everything that it's told. That's not the way love is to be understood. But love is always ready to believe the best and looks for the best in others. This goes along with what I just shared about a minute ago about, you know... uh, having the wrong idea about something uh, about somebody because of something they said or didn't say or how they looked at you or, or the comment that they made. Love is always ready to believe the best. It believes all things. It looks for the best in other people. It gives them the benefit of the doubt. Love puts as good a meaning as it can on an action that somebody takes. Again, it gives the person the benefit of the doubt. Love would rather be generous then critical. Then in verse 7, we see love's future. Love hopes all things. Love is hopeful. Love refuses to admit defeat. It hopes when there seems to be no hope. And it forgives over and over and over again. It has great expectations because we have our hope in God. The psalmist said in Psalm 62, 5, My soul wait patiently, patiently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. And where there is no expectation, there's no hope. But we have a wonderful hope in God. And love doesn't look at, at, at failure as final. You know, somebody, oh, well, they, no, they've done this same thing a million times. There's no hope. I get, no. Hope, hope doesn't look at failure as final. Hope is what keeps us going because because love is of God and love hopes in God. When we've lost everything else and, and, and we can't do anything else, you know what? We can still hope. Then there's love's fortitude in verse seven. Love endures all things. The word endure means to remain under the load. Man, when things get tough, we can continue to go. Remain under the load. Hebrews 12, 2 says of Jesus, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was under a heavy load. He was going to the cross. But he endured the cross. He remained under the heavy load because of the love of God. Love is strong and love stays under the load, no matter how long it takes, no matter how heavy it gets, no matter what else is piled on top of it. Love holds up, bears up courageously, no matter what the suffering. Solomon said in Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7, For love is as strong as death, and many waters cannot quench it. It's stronger than death. And then in verses 8 through 10, Love's last loyalty. Love never fails. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 now. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Love is lasting. It never fails. It can't fail. It can't fall. It can't become obsolete. Love is the one thing that we can count on in this universe. Because God is love. And God is eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In John 13, 1, he said to the disciples, he loved them to the end. To the end. And that's when he was washing the disciples' feet. And he knew that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him, and yet he still washed his feet and still said, I will love them to the end. Love never fails. But there are things that are not lasting, But we need those things now. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. We need the gifts today. They're important to us today. But these gifts are going to pass one day because we won't need them anymore. So Paul's going to deal now with those things that are temporal. He's going to compare it with that which is lasting and enduring. He says here, whether there are prophecies. Notice, he says, they will fail. In other words, the day will come when we no longer need this divine gift of prophecy, the teaching of the Word of God. Whether there be tongues, they're going to cease. I won't need them anymore in my worship. Right now, he says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, words, our, our knowledge is incomplete and it's imperfect and our prophecy, that is our teaching, is incomplete and imperfect. These gifts only give us a part of the whole picture. But, verse 10... When that which is perfect has come. What's perfect? Who's perfect? There's only one. Jesus Christ. So as Paul saying, until we are with Jesus, we need these gifts. And when we are with them, they will, do, they, they will cease to be. We won't need them anymore. When that which is perfect has come. Comparing what's partial and complete. When that which is complete shall come to them, that which is in part will be Done away. There's only one that's perfect and complete, and that Jesus. In Colossians, it says that we are complete in Him. I believe this is referring to the coming again of Jesus Christ, as you'll find in the context. Again, in Colossians 2 9, for in Him, Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. Perfect and complete. So you see, we'll need the supernatural gifts as long as we're here while we're journeying through our pilgrimage right now. But there will come a day when we will come to the end of our earthly pilgrimage and we'll enter into the presence and the glory of the Lord and then we will not need any of these gifts anymore. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Corinthians were like children, Paul saying, playing with toys, talking about the gift. I want yours. I want that one. I want this gift. I want that gift. So the Corinthians were like children playing with toys, the gift that would one day disappear. You expect a child to think and to understand and speak like a child, but you also expect that child to mature and to start thinking and speaking like an adult one day. And the day comes when he must, Paul said, put away childish things. One day I will have a complete understanding when I'm with the Lord, but not until then. But when he comes, that which is perfect, 
then we'll have that complete and full understanding. But right now, we're like children when it comes to spiritual things. We don't know it all. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. Paul says, right now, we see a blurred image in a mirror, kind of. He says, but then, that which is perfect, when he comes, we'll see very clearly. My knowledge right now is incomplete. But then, when that which is perfect has come, we will have complete knowledge as God has complete knowledge of me. Paul's giving us a peek into the future to give us hope that one day we will be complete in him when we see God face to face. I mean, this, should, this, should, this truth should strengthen our faith. We don't have all the answers yet, and we know that. But one day we will. And one day we're going to see Jesus in person, and we're able, going to, be able to, going to be able to see things in God's perspective. Verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three things, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul has written about what's temporary and he rounds it all off by reminding us one more time of that which is temporary. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, they're all going to cease one day. And he finishes this great chapter by going back to his original theme of love. Faith, hope, and love will abide. Faith looks back to the cross Hope looks forward to his coming, and love is God. And he is now, and he is forever God. Love is what God is. And that's why love is the greatest of all, and why Paul said it's a more excellent way. And when we look at these characteristics that Paul defined for us, we can see why the church is so far from being what it should be and accomplishing accomplishing what it should accomplish. Because we are so far from practicing this love of Jesus like we should. I want to close with this quote from the great preacher J.R. Miller. He says, It is well always to be optimistic about people. Jesus was. Jesus never gave anybody up. Evil returned by those who receive Christ's kindness never checked or lessened the flow of kindness in Christ. The fountain of love in Christ was not dried up by the bitterest enmities and persecutions. The person who wronged Christ was the very one that he sought the earliest opportunity to befriend. When a man had proved unworthy, taking advantage of Christ's compassion and unselfishness and returning only in gratitude and injury, the next one who came with his needs did not find the heart of the master closed or the flow of affection checked, but met as tender love, as if that great heart had never received a hurt. In all of our Lord's dealings with others, we find this abiding love with exhaustless patience, sympathy, hope, and help. Father, we come before you. In Jesus' name. And Father, help us, Lord, as Paul wanted us to do, to take our lives and set them alongside these characteristics of love, God. To examine them and to bring our lives 
in line with the character and the nature of God who is love. For when we do that, Father, it will change everything. Father, it will change marriages, it will change families, it will change relationships among one another in the body of Christ. Lord, it will change relationships with employees, employers, with our neighbors, with everyone, God. Because we will be like Jesus. So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to put it to heart, God. Not just be another Bible study or message or but, but, but the truth of God. God's word, love in action. So, Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We pray now, Holy Spirit, that you'd move among us, God, to be more like Christ. Father, bless our time in communion now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.